This is my great pleasure uh, for the last talk of the day, and thank you for sticking around um, for those of you who are able um, to do so, um, to introduce our last speaker. And just for housekeeping, because I know people are going to be um, running out the door, there's going to be online, and maybe, Scott, I don't know if you have more information about this, but you will get a post-survey. Um, we really do pay attention to that. We want this course to um, meet your needs, and so let us know how it went. Let us know what we can do better. And there's information online on how to claim your CME credits, and so there are CME credits for both um, uh, doctors um, and then folks in other, uh, in other tracks. Uh, so know that that is available to you, and hopefully we will uh, see you next year. So it's my great pleasure to um, introduce Doug Bruce, who's an associate clinical professor of medicine um, at Yale, and he's going to be talking to us about addiction and HIV in 2019, what we need to know, which is a lot. So, yeah. Good afternoon. All right. For those of you who stayed, I brought Percocet. No, I didn't. All right, I have no disclosures other than I don't like pain. We've got a lot of things we're going to learn. We have limited time. So let's ask our first question. According to CDC, how many people died of opioid overdose in the United States in 2017? I need to press another button, don't I, or no? Good. I know, you would think, but, you know, I'm so focused on the opioids. All right, absolutely. So, um, unfortunate, right? And 40,000 is a low number. The more recent number is 72,000 people have died as a result of overdose in the United States. So it's a huge epidemic. Um, and just graphically, the, the same information. So we're going to divide this up into a, four components. Component one is why do people take drugs? Component two is what are the basic things you need to do with all of your patients who use drugs? Part three is going to be on opioids specifically, and part four on methamphetamines. So there's a whole lot to talk about. So buckle up, and we're going to move pretty fast. So the first reason is why do people take drugs? And there are lots of reasons. If you're Steve Jobs, you took it to feel good and have a novel experience. But for most of my patients, my patients take drugs, as we say, to numb their brains, to feel better, to lessen anxiety. To, and for many of our patients, it's to forget trauma. But not everybody who takes a drug becomes addicted to that drug. And so what's the reason that some people become addicted? And so this is not just novel for addiction care, this is actually a paradigm for all things in medicine, right? There's some component of your genetics or biology and some component of the environment. And those things together result in disease. And so we can say that alcoholism is genetic, but you're never going to be an alcoholic without alcohol, right? So there are lots of things that happen in the environment. For, again, for many of my patients, there's trauma. So I've had too many conversations with people when you'll say, well, when did you start doing drugs? I started when I was 17. Why did you start using drugs when you were 17? I wanted to forget, all right? And if you pull the thread on that, there's usually some kind of uh, trauma related to that. Well, what happens when you start that drug, it has an effect, you're biologically predisposed? Well, it starts to take over normal circuitry, right? So remember, your brain is very plastic, right, which is, I may be a problem in this auditorium. It's, it, your brain is also compostable, right? But um, the, the big issue 
is that behaviors change, right? So how many people here have a cell phone? How many people react when your cell phone vibrates in your pocket? Right? That's called classical conditioning, right? So that's Pavlov's dog, right? You're salivating when you hear the bell ring, right? Your brain has changed in an adaption to a specific stimulus. Drugs are a more potent reward than your cell phone, right? And so it takes over things like food and sex drives, and so it shouldn't be surprising when for your patients, if they got 10 bucks, what do you do with your 10 bucks? I'm going to go to Subway, I'm going to get that... Italian combo with a big drink. No, you're going to spend it on drugs, right? So why? Well, the neurobiological reward for coke, for meth, for heroin is greater than the neurobiological reward for food, right? So when we go to patients and say, just don't do drugs, <laughs> right? That's not effective, right? I'm sure somewhere, somewhere has had like one patient. There's always an N of one in every statement, right? But it's, the, it's, it's a worse scenario than if you say, and I used to try to do this, when used, I used to try to encourage people to change their diets. Now I just titrate insulin to the amount of donuts you eat. But in the past it was just, so, stop eating donuts, right? Which I've not been successful with either, right? Don't have sex, that's not a successful campaign either, right? So don't do drugs, which ranks higher in order of magnitude neurobiologically is never going to successfully respond to just say no, no matter what Nancy Reagan used to say. Um, so chemsex sounds new. It's a new name for something that's really old. And what's old? Do drugs, have sex, right? Did you know there was a study that showed that if you have five beers, you're less likely to wear a condom? Now, I think we could have figured that out without doing research. I think there are a fair number of people that were really happy to participate in that study. Um, so, uh, but the key here is for us to be thinking about, you know, a lot of times we're thinking about risky sexual practices, and there's been a lot today about risky sexual practices. But something that's really important for you to think about is when your patient comes in and says, well, I'm having sex with multiple partners, one thing that should go off in your mind is, well, are there drugs or alcohol involved in these things, right? Now, you've got to be careful how you ask that, right? You don't want to come across as some really judgmental person. Well, of course, no logical person would do this. You must have been drunk, right? That's not the way to ask that question, right? But it should sound an a little alarm in your mind that maybe there are other things going on, and I shouldn't ignore it, all right? All right, so some general principles. Be nice, okay? So I'm on the West Coast, so you guys are just nicer. Like I said, I, I come from New England, right? So, but we have to remind people a lot to treat all patients with dignity and respect. And it's very important that we realize our own bigotry and how we treat people, right? So just because you're inclusive in talking to one group of people doesn't mean you're naturally inclusive with all groups of people. So it is very important for you to do some self-checking, right? If you find out that no one who uses drugs ever wants to see you as a provider, that should be a clue to you that you've got some issues in communication with those patients, right? I mean, unless you actually have no drug addicts in the Bay Area, but rumor says otherwise. Um, so people who use drugs are people, right? So we've talked a lot about today about how language is important. This is very important. And uh, I really encourage people not to take things personally, right? 
lying, manipulating. This is how people survive when they use drugs. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's just business, okay? So if your patient's going to lie to you to get oxys, what's more ridiculous is that you're surprised that they lied to you to try to get oxys. Right? That, that should just be, oh, that's kind of the way it works, right? So we, in, in my world, we call that playing the game, right? And so the more you do this, the better you get at the game. But make sure that you don't take it personally. Once you start taking these things personally, it will impact your ability to provide care and to treat people with dignity and respect. Screen patients. So these are two validated screening questions that can be asked within primary care settings. How many times in the past year have you had five or more standard drinks in a day? So that usually requires a picture or some additional information. Um, so it has to do with the quantity of alcohol, right? So a standard drink would be a two-ounce shot, right? versus a five-ounce glass of wine or versus a 12-ounce beer. So my, my patients usually drink in multiple shots and in multiple liters. And so um, it's usually a pretty easy yes. How many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or a second important point or a prescription medication for non-medical reasons? Anybody ever had a patient do that, right? Just, just Maybe it's just me. All right, the next thing is about systems. So... Why are drug dealers so successful? Home delivery, right? It's so easy to get drugs, right? I bet that if we did a field trip, we could all buy drugs within a two-block radius of this building, and I bet we could get drugs in 30 minutes or less. We're not going to actually do that study, all right? You can take my word for it. I did not do any homework. This is pure speculation, right? But the point is that there's a low threshold. Drugs are easy to get. Treatment is hard to get, right? All we've talked about today, a lot of what we've talked about today is how do you make things like PrEP and ART, low threshold, easier to get to? When you have a higher threshold, it's harder to get to. People don't access it, right? So as long as the treatment that you offer is much more difficult to get than a you know, dime bag of dope, people are going to go to heroin. And it's on us to change systems. And then the other thing that's important is that we have to really think about treatment and we have to think about it in a culturally appropriate way, right? Not everybody needs the same level of counseling and not everybody is going to respond to the same kind of thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So treat the issues, right? So uh, in the past it was, well, once you're sober, your life is perfect and all of these other things then we offer you treatment. That doesn't work. There's no data to support denying or waiting to start patients on HIV therapy or any other treatment, right? And we've heard today about the importance of treating people who are even using. In tomorrow's Annals of Internal Medicine, there's a paper looking at a randomized controlled trial of people on hepatitis C treatment that were randomized either to directly observed therapy, group therapy, or standard treatment. Now, directly observed therapy, right, at the methadone clinic gives you better adherence, but treatment outcomes were the same. Right, which speaks to the potency of the drugs. 65% of participants had a positive drug screen within six months of the trial. So here are people doing drugs who got hep C treatment and got cured. So let's offer people treatment. If you have patients that do opioids, there's actually, uh, from a risk management perspective, if you prescribe opioids and do not prescribe naloxone and someone owes Ds, you could face litigation, right? So there's some 
an attorney at uh, Northeastern who loves to say, your liability for not prescribing naloxone much outweighs the prescribing. And then there are some guidelines on the treatment of chronic pain. Don't just hand out opioids. To my first case. You inherit a new patient. I'm sure this has never happened to anyone, but a 45-year-old male comes in for his refill of oxycodone, 30 milligram tablets. I didn't say brand name, but you could put brand name. Two tablets every four hours. I, got, I need 240. It's that time of the month. You notice there hasn't been a urine tox in five years. But notice that there have been a few recent emergency department visits for methamphetamine intoxication. The patient's a little agitated, struggling to sit still, and he's wondering why the refill is taking so long. What do you do? Curse the provider who left you a mess. Give the refill and find a way never to see this patient again. Call social work or anyone to try and defuse the situation and give the patient, uh, get the patient into treatment. Talk with the patient about the emergency department visits and methamphetamine use to gauge interest in treatment and refill the medication. Or last option, do D, but do not refill the medication. And there is a right answer. <laughs> I'm very sympathetic to those who wish to curse the provider. Um, as a provider who often gets sent all of these patients to clean up, I completely understand. So I think it's interesting that uh, our reflex is what? to give the medication, right? Why is that? The patient will go away, right? If you don't give the refill, what's gonna happen? I'm gonna call the patient advocate, it's gonna go nuclear, I'm gonna fake a seizure in the lobby, someone call 911. These are not hypothetical cases, I <laughs> say, like these things happen, right? So, but what would we really wanna do? Well, so first, absolutely, we wanna talk with the patient about the truth, right? You've been to the emergency department. You've been to the emergency department for the consumption of methamphetamines, right? So in, in my practice, what I would say to the patient is, you've put me in a really difficult place here because you're asking me to prescribe to you a controlled substance when I don't know if you're taking it. There's no urine tox. But I do know that what you're taking, you shouldn't be taking, right? So there are a lot of ways to play this out. So, and I will tell you, I have done both, uh, I guess, D and E. There have been times when, depending on the setting, if I had a rapid urine tox, have the guy pee in a cup. If he's got no opiates, I'd say, you got nothing in your system? You're not going to go through withdrawal? Let me work to engage you in treatment. If I didn't have that, I'm still peeing in a cup. I'm going to give you a week's worth to come back and see me, and then we're going to talk about what we're going to do. So what's one of the big issues? Well, one of the big issues is that a lot of our patients say that they don't have a problem. Has that ever happened to you guys? Ah, it's not a problem. I can quit anytime. I had a patient tell me once, that, look, if I really wanted to quit cocaine use, my drug dealer will help me. He's really a nice guy. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Doesn't he have a conflict of interest? And she's, no, he's really a nice guy. So she did not get sober. Um, we really need to think about change, and change is a process. And so one of the things that's important in talking to that patient who uses methamphetamines is to gauge where he or she is on this wheel in the stages of change. Is this person in this kind of pre-contemplation mode or what we used to call denial, right? I just don't have a problem. Or contemplation. 
all right, I got a problem, but you know what? I'm not ready to deal with it. Can you give me the oxys? They're 10 bucks a pill on the street. I got to go buy meth, all right? Which if the person does tell me that, I don't obviously give them the prescription, right? Um, determination, okay, I got a problem. I want to do something about the problem. Action, I'm doing something about that option. And relapse, right, because relapse happens. Maintenance is trying to continue to do those behaviors to prevent relapse, right? So one of the big things is knowing where people are because your intervention has to target that. If the patient says, I don't have a problem, and all you say is, you have a problem, it's not effective. It's like talking to a kid, you took the cookie. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No. Now, if you've got cookie crumbs, then you can say, look, you've got chocolate all over your face, you're busted, right? So what does that mean? That's external evidence. So the way to address somebody with whose pre-contemplation is to bring in external evidence. And so oftentimes, that's what we'll do. I know that you don't think you have a problem. Your parole officer, however, is going to put out a warrant for your arrest because of this. So uh, somebody thinks you have a problem, right? And that sounds kind of silly that you'd need to do that, but it really is. When you're in denial, you're lying to yourself, you need external evidence to come in, right? If it's contemplation, then the conversation's more about, okay, well, if you're at a 30% here where you're willing to do something, how, how do I get you to 40%? How, how do I try and move you up in trying to make change? Sometimes what we need to do is harm reduction, right? Here's a syringe. Don't get HIV or hepatitis C, which is more likely. Naloxone, prevent overdose. And something that's really important is the last, in enabling versus boundaries. Th there is a time where, with harm reduction and other things, you're enabling behavior. If all you ever do is refill that oxycodone and never do the urine tox, you're never actually helping the patient. You may be helping your wait times and making your life better, but you're actually enabling the person's addiction. So why isn't it a problem? Well, here's the life cycle of a heroin user. So on the far left, and this is, this is old, this is from Vincent Dole in the early days of methadone, so uh, from 1966. So on the far left, you have heroin use. The little tick marks at the bottom are injections, and you have the person feels high. There's euphoria, right? When people are enjoying their drug use, they have limited interest in stopping, right? When I am eating chocolate chip cookies, I do not have an interest in stopping. After I have consumed 10 chocolate chip cookies, which I will neither confirm nor deny, um, I regret having consumed 10 and wonder if I should have consumed nine or fewer to prevent how I feel, right? But it's not operative in my decision making. If you're feeling good, you're gonna do it. Where people start thinking about change is when now if I don't use, I feel sick, right? I feel bad and now I need to change. So we, we had an instance years ago where I, used to do a lot of street outreach and I'm standing out on the corner with uh, an outreach worker and this woman comes up and she says to the outreach worker, uh, 10 bucks for a blowjob. And I'm just standing there and we're like a little caught off guard and he's got his, he's a new Yale employee, he's got his Yale badge on. And uh, he's like, um, I work with Yale and um, I'm, I'm here to help you, maybe we could get you into treatment? Her response, $5. So she eventually got into a car and left, and what was happening was she was going into opiate withdrawal, right? And so she, she was really just about, I need to feel better now. She's in that middle area. I feel sick, and I'm just trying to feel normal, right? People engage in most of their risk in this area, sexual risk, drug-taking risk, because they don't want to feel bad. 
This is what motivates people to go to detox. This is what motivates people to come in to see you. And this is where we need to be able to provide on-demand treatment. If you have a patient that comes in who doesn't feel well and can engage in treatment, you can change the course of that person's recovery. And then finally, what can often happen is people are trying to reachieve that euphoria feeling they can overdose. And in this day and age, where we have all these synthetic opioids, there's a lot of risk of overdose. All right, so a 30-year-old comes into clinic, and through much creative and interesting conversation, you conclude that the oxycodone you are giving for back pain is not in the urine tox, but morphine is. You refuse to refill the medication and call someone else to deal with the patient. Agree with the patient that it's a one-time thing and give all or some of the oxys. Discuss treatment for opioids and start bup. Discuss treatment for opioids and refer to methadone. Discuss treatment of, for opioids and start naltrexone. And you may say, what are all of those things? But if not, good luck. All right, that looks, I got 25 willing respondents. All right, so, ooh. So, discuss treatment for opioids and start bup. Uh, one out on the list there, um, with the others saying starting different forms of treatment. No one wanted to give the refill, that's great. So, heroin uh, is first metabolized to 6-acetylmorphine, right, and then to straight-up morphine. So, when you see opiates and it's morphine in the urine tox, that is never oxycodone. So I, I made myself very unpopular at a methadone clinic when a lot of bottles got revoked after I told them that. Um, so treatment, buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone are all FDA approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. We'll talk a little bit about the differences that are important. Um, in addition to medication, right, so some people will do really well with just the medicine and nothing else, but we all tend to uh, traditionally uh, encourage the use of behavioral treatments or therapy. Motivational interviewing is trying to get you to agree to come into treatment and CBT is one of the many modalities uh, to get you to think about it. There's been a lot of research in the psychiatry world of what is the best mental health treatment for recovery, and the answer is just about anything is good, whether it's AA all the way up to CBT, right? And one of the big issues there is addressing often the why you started, right? Why, if it's that whole trauma thing, uh, think about it, if your way of addressing or self-medicating your problem is through drugs, you have limited success if we take away the drugs but don't address the root problem. So here's your uh, brain on drugs. And we're missing a little square there, but no worries. The top is an MRI. The rest is a PET scan looking at the mu opioid receptors. At the BUP0, that's what looks like in the brain uh, when there's nothing occupying the opioid receptors but this little radioactive uh, Little guy. In the middle on the far right, you see there's this big red dot. And the big red dot is your nucleus accumbens. And that's the part of your brain that's really cycled into reward. So when we say that drugs are rewarding to the brain, that's where things light up. That's also the same place that lights up if, if you enjoy sex. If you don't enjoy sex, then it's probably not lighting up. But if you're enjoying sex, it's going to light up. And the, the basic idea is that it's this reward. It's telling you to go do it again. Right? And so opioids are in that camp. You can see, though, that they have lots of other things, frontal cortex, decision-making. 
as you move down to 1632, you can see that things start to lose their color and just stay at blue. And that's because it's occupying the receptors. And the basic treatment for opioid use disorder is to fill up the receptor, right? If, and what I tell my patients is, you've got a parking lot in your brain, we're filling up the parking lot with things other than heroin. If you use heroin, there's no place for it to park. Not the best metaphor, but it gets the point across. What are the big three? Well, methadone. Methadone's been around for a very long time. I am a huge fan of methadone when it's dosed appropriately. All those patients that you see who are nodding out from methadone, it's either not dosed right or they're taking another drug. Properly dosed methadone patients don't nod, right? And they don't get high from methadone. It has the best retention in treatment, all right, bar none. Better than buprenorphine, better than naltrexone. When we did an RCT comparing, this was for liver toxicity, methadone to buprenorphine, eventually we had to change randomization two to one to get enough buprenorphine people to stick around, right? Because they kept, they kept dropping off. And that's like, the, the reason retention is better if you've ever talked to a patient is methadone withdrawal is the worst withdrawal of any opioid. And so patients will come back to the clinic and re-engage in care. Buprenorphine can be office-based. It's also efficacious. Um, the retention is less than methadone, but if your measure of success is urine tox, it's the same as methadone. But the big thing is that measures of success are not just urine toxicology. And in my world, engagement and treatment is really important. Uh, for naltrexone, it can be office-based. Um, it does have some efficacy. The retention rate is much less than methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, but there is data on people who are released from prison who are HIV infected for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder, and they have good retention out at six months and good sobriety. The main issue is it's a very different population than the person that you see coming into clinic who's using drugs today, right? If you've been incarcerated for a while and then you're released, that's a whole different animal. So we don't look to naltrexone uh, for those folks. It's the basic thing. M is methadone. If you take methadone, you feel okay. H, if you use the heroin. It has a blunted response. Why? The parking lot's full. So let's talk about methamphetamine and the time remaining. So red is bad. So uh, red is volume loss. On the left, you've got a meth addict, and on the right, you have an Alzheimer's patient. And two of the issues, um, some of the arrows they're pointing out, are looking at the limbic system, which is the one in the middle. Uh, that's important for reward. And then the bottom one is your hippocampus, which is important for memory. And so one of the things we worry about a lot in people who use methamphetamines, particularly people with HIV, is that over time, through the damage of methamphetamines, there's a loss of dopamine, and people see, show motor, uh, a retardation of motor reactions and memory loss. And the concern is that in some of these patients, these things are actually permanent. So uh, I, this is in your, the slides that are available for you to review at some other point. Uh, but the basic thing is that neurocognitive effects are serious and can be permanent. So it sounds a little strange, but um, if our methamphetamine users could switch to crack, it might be better for their brains. Don't ever quote me on that, but uh, methamphetamines are bad. So what's the treatment, right? So uh, there isn't one. So there's no pharmacologic agent that's made it through phase two trials to show that this really works. Um, which is very disappointing, and lots of things have been tried, and I'll mention some of them. Behavioral health therapy or behavioral treatment is the mainstay of treatment right now, but one of the big Achilles heel here is, right, cognitive behavioral therapy or things like that 
require learning and memory. And one of the things we've just said is that methamphetamines can impair memory, which speaks to the need to intervene as early as possible in methamphetamine users, right? Um, motivational inter interviewing and CBT we mentioned earlier, both are really trying to get patients motivated into treatment. Uh, these are medications that have been studied that do not work. Some of them had early hopes. Um, some of them are, so, such as uh, mirtazapine, originally had some really interesting signals. A lot of them looked to be really good, but then as the numbers got bigger, it did not pan out. This was published this year, not too long ago. This is a, a newer medication. And this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial in men only. 18 to 65 uh, on this medication, twice daily for 12 weeks. There were so many exclusions, it's amazing that anybody qualified for this study. Uh, so any serious medical or neurological disorder, which is interesting because methamphetamine can cause that, comorbid psychiatric disorders, what they find? Well, they found that it worked. Again, if methamphetamines, a urine test is the measure of success, um, people felt better, they had less craving, better depression, lots of good things. The, why am I not that enthusiastic about this? Well, we've, we've heard this before, unfortunately, with other medications in small numbers. And you can see from the previous slide, only 34 patients in this trial got the drug, and 54 had placebo. So this is interesting, maybe there's a signal there, a larger study needs to be conducted, possibly this may be something that is useful, but again, this was a small study, and it was only in men. Australia, which has also a very large methamphetamine problem, is looking actually to begin a new agonist therapy. Agonists uh, have been tried before uh, without success, um, but this is something that's being looked at uh, and is currently enrolling in Australia. Uh, this is just a link. We've been talking about opioids. One of the big things that we often talk about in both of the examples that I gave were about folks who are coming in who are on opioids. Maybe you're inheriting them. And we usually always get from the fellows the angst and frustration of having inherited. This is when the I want to curse the last fellow uh, who's left me this mess to clean up. These guidelines uh, online are freely available, and there's a lot of resources, and there are a lot of big sections in there on pain uh, in treating substance users. Uh, for your information also, there's a lot of information on uh, in the slide deck. These links you can go to. The bottom is actually the buprenorphine training, so you can find a way to get trained. The Provider Clinical Support System, or PCSS, is a way that if you're starting into the buprenorphine world, you can actually uh, get tips, talk to people, get some mentorship so you uh, don't feel like you're out there all alone. And then the Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain Medicine, also have lots of resources uh, to help people to try and talk to patients about pain especially with the strong push, which I agree with, which is to find alternatives to opioids to treat pain. I know that was a whirlwind, so thank you for staying through to the end of the day. Thank you for the whirlwind on drugs, and with the time remaining, I'm happy to entertain any questions. People are gathering up questions. I have a question while things are getting started. How do you handle... So they're big in our practice on doing the utoxes, and when people have drugs in their urine and then say, 
no, that's not in there, or I don't know how it got there. And that sounds like a joke, but like it really, there's some psychiatric overlay, but I really struggle with that because you've talked about externalizing it, and I like to use the Utox as like, hey man, it's not me or you, this is just what's in your urine, but right. that's a tough conversation, like the cookie in the face. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a great question. So we, I, I've, I've gotten wonderful answers on the secondhand crack smoke, yeah. um, the techs out to get me. So there are innumerable things. So um, the, the first thing is that we have a system. So usually, one thing is you've got to know the strengths and weaknesses of your tests. So if you're doing an immunoassay, for example, immunoassays um, can get blinded by a lot of things. right? So if you take Cipro, depending on your immunoassay, you could be positive for opiates. Or we had an issue with a generic sertraline that was lighting everyone up for benzos. So in our system, immunoassays, the first thing, it's dirt cheap. If it's positive, we have it reflexed to a GCM aspect. Because now that tells me what the drug is, right? And so one of the big things that we, we really try and inculcate in our patients is um, you're always rewarded for honesty. So if you come in and you tell me, I relapsed, I'm in trouble, you're going to have a different kind of encounter than if you didn't. And we've done this for years. And so people understand that if you, if you come clean with the truth, you're in less trouble, right? So, um, and you're, you might actually have a better encounter. If, if you don't, um, things get more difficult. So what we tell patients is, what's in the urine is in the urine. If you are having issues with the urine or whatever, we can do a supervised urine. It's your next one. You can do an oral swab. Um, we can send off hair, but the one reason to have short hair is... Uh, However long your hair is, is how long the record of your drug use is. Um, so if you ever go for a hair test, shave your head before you go, right? So uh, it gets to be difficult. Patients will often personalize it and get upset, but we just try to talk about it as, this is what the result is. You know, we can talk about how I got in there, but we can't ignore it. It's in your record. I, I can't just brush this off. We're going to have to just assume for the purposes of this conversation that it's true. Um, so, question about the upregulated CCR5 receptors and meth use. Can you talk about that a little bit more and if that's clinically relevant to HIV care? So, we don't know if it's clinically relevant. Um, and so, there's, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on it. It's one of those interesting things. We're finding more and more about stimulant use, that stimulants and heroin itself are doing a lot of things to the immune system and doing a lot of things, especially opioids, to the neuroendocrine axis. And so it's an area of ongoing research. But right now, we don't think there's any clinical applicability of it. And the reason I ask that yep. is I, I've spent decades on the wrong medications and how I'm lucky to be able to tell you that the meth use is affecting the risk factors other than the factors affecting the dopamine particularly in meth. Stimulants will increase viral load. Cocaine and methamphetamines increase your viral load, right? If you're not on ART, right? The big issue is, you know, it, we always want to offer treatment, and many patients can take treatment. Stimulant users have a harder time with adherence than non-stimulant users, right? Heroin users can be heroin users for decades. They, they can get a whole system. Stimulant users struggle with that much more. Will you re repeat the question? So the, the question is, if the patient is on opioids for pain, their urine comes back with no opioids in it, what's our course of action? So, my so one is I want to make sure that everything was correct. But assuming that it's the person's urine and all of that, then I would say, well, looks like you don't need the opioid. 
So, you know, that's great. And then I would go into the whole opioids are bad. We shouldn't start it. Let's give you Motrin. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say never because, you know, yeah, he's going to break his leg. I mean, you know, I, I've, I, I once a patient called to the methadone clinic and said, I got shot and um, can you guys meet me outside and give me take-home bottles or something like that. And I was like, I, I've known this guy for a very long time. I was like, he didn't get shot. He's got to come into the clinic. He came to the clinic. He had gotten shot in the leg. And so I was like, I felt a little bad. I was like, all right, Dennis, sorry about that. Um, but, you know, you spent 10 years lying to me. So <laughs> you know, that's kind of the consequence of lying. Yeah. So. so a question about is there a way to harness sort of the regular HIV treatment visits to, to align those with substance abuse counseling? Like, are they the same providers? How can we make a better use of yeah. our systems? So this speaks to something called contingency management. So what we do in our clinical environment uh, for patients, so we also have methadone clinics and, and suboxone clinics, so it's, I realize it's kind of a unique environment. But if you are able to do suboxone, what we do in our environment is we link suboxone to other things that we want the person to do, right? So when, if you've seen me step out, I've been calling in suboxone, <laughs> right? And so some of those, like one dose I called in was for two days worth of suboxone, one maybe for weeks, and it's linked to your next appointment. So uh, we've got people coming in Wednesday, they're gonna see a therapist, their suboxone's linked to that. So we use contingency management. So you could do that for the person needs to see the psychiatrist, the person needs to come into a nurse for their adherence counseling, for anything. Patients will follow the medication, right? And it sounds horribly paternalistic, and it is, but it is actually effective. And when you explain that in advance to the patient, right, um, patients are actually like the idea. When we say, we want you to have counseling, we want you to have medication, we're going to link the appointments together to make it more convenient for you. The patients say, that's great. Can you do that? So I only come in once a week? Yeah, you can come in once a week, and we link your appointments, or you can come in twice a week. So we found universal acceptance. Um, comment about curbing the epidemic. We've heard a lot about just how awful the epidemic is. What, what do we need to do to, to change it? Everybody should prescribe naloxone, right? Yeah. So um, how many people here actually prescribe naloxone? All right? That's great. That's great. So maybe next year everybody will raise their hands, right? So it's very easy to do. We encourage everyone to do it. And, and part of that is you'll say, well, the person in front of me is not even using opioids. Well, but is their partner using opioids? Is a kid using opioids? Right? People have access to opioids all over the place. And we, we don't want to be naive. Um, opioids start trafficking into schools in the elementary and junior high school time because you always, I mean, I say you always want to. Drug dealers understand the neurobiology addiction. They want to talk to people with limited decision-making capacity. Teenagers are not known for making really good long-term decisions, right? And so if you're a drug dealer, you're going to capitalize on that. So the patient in front of you may be like, oh, that person's never using opioids, but maybe they need Narcan in their home to save their child's life. And can you just comment on treating patients who have substance use issues and have pain? Because it's challenging. Like, you can't give them naltrexone if you're giving them chronic narcotics. Yep. You always hear all over the place, well, bup doesn't work for my pain. I don't know if yep. that's true yeah, or yeah. not, but. Um, so buprenorphine was first FDA approved in 1978 for the purposes of analgesia. So when patients tell me it doesn't work for pain, I say, you know, it's a pain medication, right? So we found out later it could be used for addiction. So um, that said, um, some of it's going to depend on what the pain is. So for patients with malignancy, we're like, give them whatever they need in order to, to be pain-free. And I've had substance users with HIV, with cancer, who 
um, people were denying them access to opioids. And, and I had to step in and say, this, this guy's dying of lung cancer. Like, you, you need to give him opioids. He, he needs pain control. So in our system, if you're actively using drugs and you have chronic pain, we will offer to continue your treatment for chronic pain. We're going to want to do a more buprenorphine or methadone-based. We might consider other issues, but you're always going to be, it's contingent on engaging in drug treatment. So I'm going to say, I can't just give you an opioid, like a blank check, without addressing these other issues. So you're going to get into the IOP. We're going to address your other stuff. And if you do that, we're willing to walk forward with you in treatment. Maybe I have this as the last question, and maybe if you're around, could take questions as folks are filtering out if there's more burning questions. But how about extremely high THC levels, um, which we can see with all sorts of available uh, types of uh, uh, pot that are around now on new HIV treatment approaches? And I think the larger question is just how do there's like so much designer cannabinoids out there? What's the downside in terms of people's you know health? Yeah. So. It's natural. It has to be fine, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Is, so, are, so are some of the mushrooms. They kill you. So um, I always tell patients, inhaling any burning thing into your lungs is probably not good for your lungs. So the, the issue for patients and I think for providers is wh where is their harm for other reasons, right? Because I mean, none of us are going to say, yeah, it's great to smoke, right? I mean, hopefully none of us are saying that. So my first thing to patients is always, look, you're burning your joint, you're smoking it, that's not good for your lungs. The big question around all drug use is the why. Why are you doing this? So if my patient says, well, I'm smoking pot because you're not going to give me opioids and I need something for my chronic pain and this is helping me, oh, okay, that's great. Smoke pot and pot and don't, because I'm not going to give you opioids, right? If it's, um, I need to be in a cloud because I can't cope with the people around me. Or I'm really depressed and I want to be in a fog and I don't want to live my life. Then I have some issues now with substance use because there's now something going on in that person's life that I feel like I need to work with that person to address. So what I'm saying is I don't view it as binary, that all pot use is bad, all pot use is good, it doesn't matter. I think we always as prescribers have to be thinking about, well, what's behind it? Why are you engaging in a behavior? And if you ask patients, I always ask patients, what value does this drug have for you? And when you ask that open-ended question, you get all kinds of answers. I've learned more about people's trauma because I asked an open-ended question just trying to find out, right? This clearly has value for you. You're using it. Levels, I would not focus on too much unless levels change dramatically. So if you talk to a lot of the toxicology guys, um, it's very, very, very difficult for you to be able to say, like, you know, we, we have the psychiatry department loves to tra track the nanograms of alprazolam in your urine over time. And I'm like, you can't, you can't do that because it has to do with how much you took, the timing of it, how much water you drank. I mean, there's all kinds of things that impact the number in the urine tox. But if there are huge changes, if you had 3,000 nanograms of buprenorphine and then you got 30, then I'm going to be like, I think he's probably selling this, so let's bring him in to count his films. So long answer, a little more, more complicated. But I think the most important thing is always pull the thread. Why are people doing what they're doing? The synthetic cannabinoids are dangerous. We tell people don't use any of them. There have been a lot of reports of psychosis, some psychosis. Psychosis is like uh, breaking a glass bottle. Once it's broken, you can't fix it, and it doesn't go back. So we tell people do not do synthetic cannabinoids as much as possible. All drug dealers are now adulterating other substances. So um, it's rare that people are actually buying a little pure bag of something. 
um, in the day and age where carfentanil, which is you know a thousand times stronger than heroin, uh, you can put just a little bit in anything. And lots of drug dealers are now putting it in coke and probably methamphetamine because you're, they're trying to get the balance. People who use coke or meth are going to burn out after a while, right? There's just so much that your dopamine receptors can do, and then you just got to pause, right? I mean, that, they don't stop as I'm giving up for life, but well, I went on a three-day binge. I need to like sleep for two days, right? The system's got to reset. But if we could get you hooked on an opiate that potentially moderates some of the negative effects of the stimulant making you a little crazy, and I can get you smoking for four days instead of three, I made more money. And if I can get you hooked on the opiates so that you go into withdrawal when you don't get it, now you want my opiates too and I'm gonna make more money. So m make sure you realize that the people that are bagging stuff don't always also know what they're doing. So that's why you'll see overdoses sometimes in people that have methamphetamines or coke. And people are like, why did Johnny OD on opiates? Like, he doesn't do that. Well, the, the people bagging them aren't always scientifically measuring how much they're putting in the bags. I want to um, thank Dr. Bruce for a really terrific talk. Thank, thank you all for um, sticking it out to the very end. Please do fill out your um, online uh, uh, surveys because we do really value your feedback. Um, and you can uh, get a link to the uh, CME credit uh, claim through the IAS USA website. So thanks so much. <laughs>